I'm going to take a slightly different perspective, as you might expect, and Matt, I'm sure, expects. And, but I'm going to talk because this is a whole series of perspectives from science and industry. So I'm, I'm the scientist and Matt's the industrialist, and we're meant to have a little debate about that. But what I'm going to talk about is, is how we might use insurance to adapt to climate change, what role that has. And I'm going to talk about five things. I'm going to talk about ideas about adaptation, the current flood insurance situation, a move towards flood risk reflective costs, the rewards of risk reduction, and finally some conclusions. So what do we mean by adaptation? Well, the, the guru of adaptation is, is this man here, Dobzhansky. He's a, he's a biologist, an evolutionary biologist, and he began work in the 50s and 60s defining the nature of evolution of biological systems. And he came up with this definition of adaptation as an evolutionary process whereby an organism becomes better able to live in its habitat or its habitats. So it's about continuity of living, if you like, which I think we can apply to flood insurance. Now, the adaptation subcommittee, which is an important subcommittee, Jim Hall's on it, uh, had a different perspective slightly, and they say that preparing for climate change today in many instances will reduce the impact of future costs and damages and enable organiz organizations and individuals to take advantage of potential opportunities. So it's not just a question of reacting, it's a question of taking advantage. Adaptation is a positive process. It also both concerns the individual and it's a social process. It's a collective process as well as an individual process. We need incentive mechanisms that fit both circumstances. But it's complicated in the flood situation, some of which, as Matt has explained. First of all, the, the governance arrangements for flood risk management are incredibly complicated, and necessarily so, but they continue to confuse people and to delay decision-making. It's complicated because the nature of flooding is very localised, but you need a national perspective. And so you have a range of governance systems which end up very complex. <laughs> Awareness of risk can be very low, leading to poor understanding and poor response. Uh, it, it, ep, uh, floods are episodic events. They're not continuous, like theft, as Matt has so cl clearly demonstrated. And the skills of those who need to adapt may be lacking because they don't get used very often, leading to inadequate adaptations. So some, there are some of the problems. So for sensible adaptation, and this is what I want to concentrate on, we need effective and transparent policies. We need awareness raising to counter ignorance and hence inaction. And most importantly, we need an incentive structure that includes and encourages real behavioral change. Those are the three standpoints I want to compare flood insurance against. Now, the remarkable thing about flood insurance in this country is how, how much there is of it. <clears throat> it's almost unique internationally. And the ABI says the take-up of all homeowners is about 93%. It's maybe slightly old, but it's more or less there. Because insurance is a standard condition of UK mortgages. And without insurance, you don't get a mortgage. And without mortgages, you don't usually get a house. So 75%, in addition to that, of all householders have home contents cover. The contents of a house is usually separately insured to the actual fabric of the building. But there are problems here. Don't forget, this is something you go out and purchase, particularly the contents insurance. 
there's only a 60% uptake of building insurance amongst the two lowest income deciles, the last 10, 20% of the population, who probably don't own their house, or if they do own their house, it's probably something fairly modest. Worse still, 75% of households, as I say, have contents insurance, but only half of the lowest decile of the population have contents insurance. So it's unevenly distributed. It's not provided by the National Health Service, you might say. It comes out of a free market process. That's a problem. Now here we are at Christchurch. And it's interesting to look at this. This is the map of Oxford with its flood outline. The blue is the 100-year event. The turquoise is a, is a larger event, a 1,000-year event. And it's interesting to see where the churches are, isn't it? The churches, they knew a thing or two about where to locate themselves. And also Christchurch, just on the edge of the meadow, but right out of the floodplain. This is where I live, in Jericho. And I pay, of course, for flood, flood insurance. And there's my two renewal policies coming through this year. And the total bill is about £259 for, for the structure of the house and about 295 for the contents. So I'm paying about £554 a year for insurance. But this is not for flood insurance, this is for everything. It's a bundled, a bundled policy. Everything is bundled together. And I don't know how much I pay for flood insurance, and nobody knows how much they pay for flood insurance because it's bundled with theft and fire and <coughs> subsidence and all the other things that you're insuring against. I also don't know the extent to which I cross-subsidise other people. I know that because my risk is low, or very low, and even if I lived on top of the hill, I would actually pay some flood insurance, I don't know how much I am cross-subsidising others. And if I did know, I might be happy to do it, but as Matt said, if the cross subsidy gets too big, I might get somewhat reluctant. Now, why are we in this situation? Well, Matt explains about the, the, um, the situation regarding the... Where, which is the best button to press? Which is the, which is the light? The, the, the middle one? That way. Matt talks about the statement of principles, but the pre-existing agreement was called a gentleman's agreement. Rather a unfortunate term. The gentleman's agreement was a similar sort of agreement with government and the insurers which said the insurers will offer insurance to most people as long as they can charge flood insurance to everyone including those who lived on the tops of hills and therefore by default a cross subsidy was introduced into the system. It's not inherently there but it is there and that cross subsidy was continued under the Statement of Principles and probably will be continued under the Flood Re because the Flood Re involves a subsidy of that levy paid for by everybody, including people who live on tops of hills, in order to pay for the claims of those who are at most risk. So little has changed really, strangely enough, over about 50 years. And that has its great advantages as far as policy stability. It has the disadvantage that we're stuck with a very fundamental cross-subsidy created in the 1960s, from which it's very difficult to actually withdraw. But of course, insurance does help. It helps people to recover quickly, and that's perhaps the most important thing that insurance does in making people more resilient. But of course, the people who need to recover quickly or have not the ability to recover quickly are the people who are poor. All the research shows that if you have savings in the building society or bank, you can use your savings to buy the cooker that's broken and the carpet that's destroyed. 
But unfortunately, of course, it's the poorest people who are least likely to insure. And that's a problem for the industry, which it recognizes. Now, there are two things going on in flooding in terms of policy right now. One of which is that the government's moving towards something called partnership funding. They're seeking contributions from local communities to fund flood risk management schemes, engineering schemes and others, up and down the country. Partly because they want to increase the pot of money for flood risk management, partly, I think, because they want actually localism to provide a sort of engagement process whereby people actually take some responsibility for the circumstances that they find themselves in in terms of risk and pay some money towards uh, that uh, alleviation of the risk. And the contributions can come from the local levy, sorry, or they can come from the public through local authorities, or possibly even from the private sector. And the government is continuing to spend money on flood risk management. This is about £600 million. And this was the, 19, the 2012 spending review settlement, which nudged it up a bit. And the latest one, the spending review in June of this year, nudged it up further. So they are continuing to spend money but they also want some local contributions to add to that sum so as to actually increase uh, the, the spend and reduce the risk. That's one thing that's happening, is the government is moving towards more local contributions from those who benefit, a beneficiaries pays approach, if you like. Flood Re, on the other hand, is doing exactly the same sort of thing. It's trying to get more money out of those who are at risk. It replaces the statement of principles but it separates out that constituency of people who are funded through the flood repool in order to provide them with insurance that they find affordable. And affordability is one of the criteria that, that is in, in place. But if you look at the government position on this, they see this, and I think the industry sees this, as transitional. Transitional over a very long time, maybe 20 years, towards a situation where insurance is fully risk-reflective. There's a quote here, while a gradual move to risk-reflective pricing in the longer term would create additional incentives to reduce the likelihood and the cost of flooding, there's an incentive there to try and help yourself, successful implementation of the agreement, this is the flood re-agreement, would entail insurance terms adjusting towards risk-reflective pricing at a pace that allows choices to be made and so on and so on and so on. So it's a slowing down mechanism, if you like, towards risk-reflective pricing. Now, let's look at who's at risk of flooding. There are about 21 million people who live off the floodplain, and I know that some of those suffer from surface water flooding, and there are about 2 million people that live at significant or non-significant risk on the floodplain. That's the breakdown of the population of England and Wales. Significant risk is risk inside the 1 in 75 year return period flood extent outline. When you say significant, it's not very significant. It's a flood once in a lifetime, maybe two lifetimes, actually. Non-significant risk is the area between the 75 and the 1,000-year return period extent outline. A very low risk, in fact, non-significant. Now, what's happening in the future? The Climate Change Risk Assessment in 2012 has done some work to look at the future flood risk. And it suggests that on average, sometime, something like 2.7 times the population currently exposed to significant likelihood of flooding could be so affected by 2050. 2.7 times. 3.7 times by the 2080s. So their analysis shows an increasing problem. 
Residential properties in this flood probability band, which are in the most economically deprived areas, could rise between to between 170,000 and 560,000. Currently, there are only 70,000, a 5.2-fold increase. So even worse for the economically deprived areas. Annual property flood damage was rise by something like 3.5-fold, and insurance claims could run would rise by something like threefold. So a significant increase in problem with climate change into the 2050s and the 2080s. Now it's unproven, but that's their forecast, that's their projection, and from a very official uh, and scientifically-led study. Now, we've done some modelling. It's, it's, it's a little bit simplistic, but I think it's quite revealing, of how different groups would be affected by both the change towards localism of funding of flood risk management and the change towards risk-reflective pricing for flood insurance. We've looked at those who are at significant risk and those who are at non-significant risk, two particular groups. We've looked at deprived households, the lowest 20% uh, by income decile, and non-deprived households, those are the highest eight income deciles. And we've looked at those in public housing and private housing. And the difference there is that, in general, the landlords pay for flood damage to the building in public housing, whereas, of course, the private homeowner pays for both damage to the structure of the building and damage to the contents. So, in some respects, the public housing person is better off. Let's look at the distribution of those populations. This diagram is more or less the same as the previous pie diagram. Again, we have 21 million people outside the flood risk area and 2 million people roughly in it. And within the area, we have the significant deprived risk, the top one, the, the blue one, those who are significant risk and they're deprived, the 20% decile of income. We have significant flood, non-deprived, moderate flood, that's the non-significant flood deprived, and the non-significant flood non-deprived. And we have the people outside the floodplain who are either deprived or not deprived. And we've looked at the distribution, changing distribution of these policies. Let's look at the current, the current situation. The current situation maps the net benefit per property for different groups that I've just described. Net benefit, that is to say how much they gain from flood risk management and flood insurance or how much they lose. And these households, those at most sig significant risk, uh, who are either in deprived or in deprived, uh, in deprived or non-deprived households, but they're basically at significant risk, these households pay far less in taxes and insurance than they gain in terms of damage avoidance and compensation through flood insurance, as you'd expect. This group in the middle pay little taxes or insurance if deprived, but they gain less than the top group because they claim less from the insurers, and therefore their insurance compensation is more or less matched by what they pay in flood insurance. This group down here, on the other hand, are not really at risk at all. They're off the floodplain, they're up on tops of hills. They pay a very small contribution towards taxation, towards flood risk management each, and they pay something quite small towards flood insurance. But of course, there are 21 million of them. And here's our modeling framework. This is where we are now, which means that basically 
Flood risk management is not funded by the beneficiaries of flood risk management. This is flood risk management that basically the government spend on flooding. And this is insurance here along here. And insurance, generally speaking, is not risk-based. Most insurance premiums are more or less the same whether you're at risk or not at risk, in general. Not, not everyone, but in general. The assumptions of the model is that if you move in any direction from the status quo, you transfer the same amount of money from those who currently benefit to those who would benefit under each of the different scenarios. The total insurance premium will remain the same, but to be levied on different people. The total flood protection cost will be the same, but charged to different people. It'll be charged to those who are at risk. Now, as we go up the, the, the vertical graph, we move from a situation where the, 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 the taxation is generally raised to pay for flood risk management to those that only those who are at risk pay for their flood risk management. It's like a flood tax, if you like. On the other dimension, we move towards a situation in scenario three where only those at risk pay for flood insurance. There's no cross-subsidy from those not at risk as there is now. We also looked at four, scenario four, where both flood insurance and flood risk management costs are paid for by only those at risk of flooding, only those who live in the floodplain. But we're interested here today in just this group three, the scenario three, where insurance costs change. Scenario two, what would happen, what would it mean? It would mean that in most extreme cases for properties at significant risk with deprived occupants of public housing, the flood task, tax per property would increase from something like £12 to £500 a year, representing a 40-fold increase. If you concentrate the cost on those who benefit, you particularly penalise those who are deprived, partly because they pay so little now. It's not considered further here this afternoon. On the other hand, if we look at scenario three, where we're looking at transferring the insurance burden just onto those who are at risk, insurance costs for floodplain residents would be significantly higher, and Matt has given figures which are probably better than mine. Those in private housing are at a distinct disadvantage compared with their public housing equivalents because the public housing damage costs are paid by the landlord rather than by the tenant. Let's look at some figures. And these again may be out of date. One of the things that's most difficult to do in this country is to do research on the insurance industry, as Matt will agree, because everything is secret. Not secret because nasty, it's secret because it's confidential commercial com com confidentialities. Most deprived people pay something like £34 a year towards flood risk management costs and flood insurance. A small amount because they pay very little in taxation. The not deprived pay something like 74. And broadly speaking, across that 22, 23 million people, the costs are the same. I don't know how much I spend in Richmond Road, Jericho, but that's probably more or less what I do spend. Let's look at, look at see what happens if things change. If we end the cross-subsidy, then the costs for those off the floodplain would fall to something like £8 and £30. It would just be their flood risk management costs that would remain, not the flood insurance costs. We're going horizontally along that diagram. Small gains for those not at risk, but still contribute something towards flood risk management costs. If we look at the other side of the diagram, the increases are dramatic. 
they go from something like an average of £34 to £684 for the most deprived at significant risk. Why is it so low here? Because they don't pay very much in taxes and they don't actually insure very much either. We know that from the figures. And they have to bear a huge, huge increase, or would have to bear if they bought the flood insurance. But of course they probably wouldn't. Penetration of flood insurance would surely collapse, and that's something the government is very worried about. But the corollary of this is that the 2 million households would have to pay a lot more, but 21 million households, who are virtually flood-free, would have to pay that little bit less something like £873 million less per year that I pay, you pay, if you live on tops of hills. And those at risk would have to pay something like a billion pounds a year more. Figures are not quite comparable. There's, there's some rounding there and some differences which I can't go into now. So it's a huge transfer of money to those who are at risk if we go down the risk-reflective route, which government says is inherent in the flood re, we're just in a transitional period. I won't trouble you with, with, with the results for, for four. They're particularly dramatic uh, because then all the costs are loaded onto those who are at risk. And five is actually not much different. A 20-fold increase for deprived households at significant flood risk. Their total contribution if you, if you move halfway along both axes. So that's one thing I have to say. A real problem about moving towards risk-reflective pricing. We should do that to promote adaptation, but it has huge effects on parts of the population. So who gets the rewards of risk reduction through adaption of our insurance? Now, one of the things that we've noticed in research is that insurance premium rates are generally broadly constant across risk categories. Now, that was done by Sally Priest and also Jessica Mont in two PhD theses. They're getting a little bit old now and they may be different now, but broadly speaking, insurance rates are more or less the same across different risk bands now. There's a statistical analysis that Jessica did to prove that. I won't go into that. Now, there's a problem here. The problem is that individual flood victims who are insured do not gain financially from the amount of money that government spends on flood risk management. Why? Because they're compensated for the damage that accrues by flood insurance. They should be no better off after the flood insurance than before, and vice versa. No better off before than after. They should be fully compensated for the damage. But if there is flood risk reduction investment in a community, then event losses should decline. That's what we're doing it for. If there's no such decline, the investment will not have been worthwhile and shouldn't have been done. If there is this decline in flood losses, then insured claims should be fewer and lower. <coughs> this in turn should be reflected in lower premiums to be paid by those who risk if flooding has been reduced or changes to other arrangements such as excesses. If there's no such change in premium levels, then the insurance company will obtain its full premium income, but claims will be lower and costs will therefore be lower. This should result in the insurance company making larger profits and giving larger dividends to their shareholders. I must acknowledge a little self-interest here. I have some shares in Prudential. That's why the red spot is there. So, what is happening is given an average benefit cost ratio of 8 to 1 in flood risk management, every pound invested by DEFRA in EA has 8 pounds of damage loss savings. 
In general means, this means an £8 average claim reduction for the insurance companies per pound of DEFRA investment. Yet the insurance companies do not pay directly for any of this, but gain hugely from it. On the face of it, it seems too good a deal. What I'm saying is that all this money that DEFRA spends goes straight f into the pockets of the insurance company's shareholders because the people who actually gain from its sp the spending of flood risk management don't actually change their financial situation. There's no change in the financial situation of those who are helped. They still pay broadly the same insurance premiums. So who's getting the reward? Now, another interesting thing about flood insurance is the effect on house prices. I'm coming to the end now, Christine. We know that damage is caused by housing up to something like £50,000. We also know that there are huge costs of evacuation. And evacuation has not a cost, but also it has quite traumatic effects. Now, we've done some work trying to work out the annual average damage caused by flooding on the average property in the floodplain. It's quite an arcane concept, but it's, we're trying to get some sort of average loss for houses protected to a different standard. And we came up with some figures. And if you say that about £1,500 is the annual average damage for relatively unprotected properties, and you discount this over a capital sum of 40, uh, over, over a period of time at a discount rate of 3%, which is the current uh, Treasury discount rate, you get a capital sum of something like £43,000. And this is the value added, if you like, that people in flood risk areas get from subsidised flood insurance. And therefore, they are part of the gainers in this process uh, from the fact that you have a subsidised insurance scheme. So, conclusions. What we need for sensible adaptation is effective and transparent policies. Now, flood insurance, as far as the person paying the bill is concerned, is far from transparent, and it's not likely to get any better. There has been awareness raising, but there's a long way to go, and the cross-subsidy doesn't help, because it confuses people into thinking that their flood risk is really quite low. A signal of a higher flood insurance premium would be a good one to promote adaptation. So the incentive structure is dented by the continuation of the subsidy, which positively discourages self-help, but without it, the deprived will suffer. Here's the dilemma. And they probably will not insure if insurance premiums rise to the kind of figures that I've given and Matt has given. The lack of risk-reflective pricing, however, hugely advantages insurance companies because they can charge people who live on tops of hills something for flood insurance. A last word with the adaption Adaptation Subcommittee. Households will be more likely to take action early if there are clearly financial incentives to do so, if they face a reduction in the costs of flood insurance, or if they avoid uninsured and non-monetary losses such as distress. I don't think she thinks much of that recommendation. She's been suffering distress, and it's rather difficult to see how she might have avoided it. So, that's the conclusions we come to. And I like this diagram in terms of insurance because she suffered the uninsured losses and she feels traumatic about it. On the other hand, he looks quite happy about the situation. And that's because his mini here, which has been flooded, was fully insured on a new for old basis 
and an another one is being delivered from Oxford next week. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>